0: Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we explore what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are sadly living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is a project of Surge Faith, and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December twenty fourteen, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. My name is Blythe Barno, my pronouns are she, her, and today I'm talking to you from Hopewell land, which is now called Newark, Ohio in Central Ohio. I spend my days working with Faith and Public Life as their harm reduction faith manager, where I work to bring people who use drugs and faith leaders together to end the racist war on drugs. I also serve on the Surge Nationals leadership team and am pursuing ordination in the United Church of Christ. So just some fun facts about me. Okay, let's jump into this week's scripture. John fifteen nine to 17. It reads, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands, so that you may love one another. To confess that any scripture that talks about bearing fruit just brings images of the handmaid's tale to mind. But I'm not going to go there because I actually really love what Jesus is asking of us here far more than I love dystopian novels or shows on Hulu. So instead I'm going to focus on the word abide. Some of you preachers out there love a definition and so do I. So I went and looked up what abide means, and it said that abide means to accept or act in accordance with. I kinda just sat with that for a minute, imagining the voice of Jesus, the voice of God, saying abide in my love, accept my love, act in accordance with my love. I spend a lot of time thinking about how to act in accordance with God's love but I sometimes miss the part about accepting that love for myself. Sometimes in a pastoral care session or an organizing meeting I'll ask, what does God want for you? What does God want for us? I found it to be a powerful way to expand people's sense of what is possible and what's deserved. What we wish for ourselves can be so small sometimes. But God is asking us to accept God's love and all of what God wants for us. God is asking us to expand, not shrink, because that's what true love does. It asks us to be more of ourselves, not less. For me, this question of accepting God's love and acting in accordance with it is central to the call to defund the police. As people of faith, we know that budgets are moral documents. And calling to defund the police and invest in Black communities is an assertion that we value connection over punishment, care over surveillance, and love above all. In my denomination, the United Church of Christ, we commit to being in covenant with one another and with the world, which means we commit to caring for one another and remaining in right relationships. But policing ruptures that covenant, both by harming us and our siblings, but also by leaving us with the false impression that the hurt and harm in our communities is no longer our responsibility, but instead can just be handled by calling the police. Overinvestment in policing grows our suspicion and fear of one another. Instead, the Movement for Black Lives is asking us to abide in our love, deepen our moral imagination, and ask what God really wants for us. Does God want no-knock warrants? Or does God want neighborhoods made safe by abundance, made safe through enough food to eat, enough homes in which to sleep, enough money for rent and leisure, enough helping hands? Does God want body cameras? Or does God want to live in a world where we respond before the violence ever happens, instead of just watching it play out on a tape and praying that it'll be enough to get some sense of delayed accountability? No, I don't think that's what God wants for us. The Movement for Black Lives is asking us to defund the police and invest in black communities so that we can truly make our budgets match our morals because we know that God wants us all to have life and have it abundantly. The movement for black lives is reminding us that when we reject fear and white supremacy, we all have enough. So let me ask you this, what does God want for you? What does God want for your neighborhood? What does God want for your country? What does God want for black lives? Notice that I didn't ask, what do you think you can get? I didn't ask, what do you think's winnable? And I didn't ask, what do you think others will agree with you on? I asked what God wants for you. Part of our responsibility as people of faith in this moment is to hold tight to that vision and share it with others. Too often, we are letting others answer these questions for us, and that damages our relationship to ourself, to others, and to the divine. God asks us to act in accordance with God's love, not Steve's opinion. You know what I'm saying? But how can we act in accordance with God's love if we're not even sure what God's love is asking of us? Jesus tells us, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will follow my love. I felt something shift in me when I read that scripture today. Like Jesus was not telling us, follow these commandments or pay the price. Instead, he was teaching us how to love him and how to love each other. These commandments are our guide to that love, not our punishment. When people tell you how to love them, it is always a gift. To be honest, it's been a while since I looked at the full list of the Ten Commandments. I mean, I know all the big ones, of course, but when I pulled them up to read them over again, those weren't the ones that struck me. What what struck me was, you shall have no gods before me. What does it mean to have no other gods before God? I'm going to embarrass myself a little and tell you that I have a framed picture by my bed that says, God is God. Because I need a daily reminder that I am not God. (laughs) Yes, I have a responsibility to myself, to God, and to God's creation, but I am not in charge. I am not the ultimate authority. And I found that I often got those things confused. Responsibility and control. I actually went to seminary because after a decade of working in a broken social service program, I was incredibly burnt out. I went home at the end of every day, afraid for people, and heavy with the weight of saying no and telling people I couldn't give them access to what they needed. I worked incredibly long hours, put my whole heart into it, but still came home feeling like a failure. I think it's because I confused my responsibility to care for people and contribute to systemic change with having ultimate control over a system. I felt like I was personally responsible for people's inability to access supportive housing instead of being clear that the housing system was broken and keeping people from accessing supportive housing. I made systemic failures, personal failures. And in doing so, I destroyed my physical and emotional health while leaving the housing system unscathed. I went to seminary in part because I knew that I needed a job where it was clear that there was a bigger boss than me. I needed God to be the boss so I could stop confusing my responsibility to care for creation, which shockingly included myself, with control over creation. For me, I'm clear that this desire for control is rooted in white supremacy, not because white folks are inherently sinister and controlling, but because white supremacy is presented to us as a way to order our life and achieve a sense of power, control, and calm in our lives. We're told that if we simply follow the rules, we will be given peace and power. But white supremacy is a lie. So those rules are a lie. And they leave us grasping for control. Control over others, control over self, control over systems. They keep us grasping for personal control instead of systemic change. And the feeling of failure that comes from clamoring for control or peace and never finding it makes us feel powerless, unlovable, and ashamed, which only makes us grasp for control more. It is this feeling of failure that keeps us from truly abiding in God's love, for ourselves, for others, for God's creation. Instead, it makes us weary And in our weariness, we look for quick answers, quick sound bites, easy explanations because often we don't have the energy or endurance needed to offer genuine love and connection. It is how the oversimplified talking points of the far right take root, but we know that there is no peace in that path. Systemic change is not easy. It can be really uncomfortable. It can be deeply inconvenient. And it asks some big things of us. But I also don't really buy the idea that committing ourselves to ending white supremacy is somehow the same as committing ourselves to suffering. White folks can talk about it like that sometimes, though. We can get really intense, like, listen. If you're going to be part of ending white supremacy, you have to know you're going to lose something. Maybe even a lot of things. Maybe even everything. Maybe even your life. Uh, no thanks. I mean, to be honest, that can be really true for folks. Combating power comes with risk. But also, what a terrible marketing campaign. I can say that bringing myself into deeper alignment with organizers of color and committing to ending white supremacy has, yeah, brought some risk and cost me some things, but it is nothing compared to what I have gained, to what I have healed, to who I've gotten to know, to how I've gotten to be known. So let's not get confused. Suffering is a symptom of white supremacy. Combating white supremacy does not produce suffering. Instead, it is one way to abide in God's love. And abiding in God's love ultimately brings us joy and connection. It's our responsibility to say that. Jesus says it in today's scripture. He says, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you, so that your joy may be complete. Jesus wishes joy for us not suffering. So let's lift that up. When we talk about ending white supremacy, let's talk about the joy that it brings us, not just what it costs us, because what it offers outweighs the cost by a long shot. I've worked with a spiritual director for the past six years. And in my session with her last week, I shared some about my struggle to find balance between showing up honoring my responsibility to God and creation, and, you know, liking myself, liking my life, and caring for my basic needs. At the end of every session, she asked how she can pray for me, and I asked her to pray for my joy. Her face lit up, and she asked if she could read me something from the Book of Common Prayer, which is not really our usual go-to And I said, yes. So she read this prayer and I'm going to share it with you. It says, keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. Shield the joyous, soothe the suffering. That is God's will for us. That our joy should be protected and our suffering alleviated. But it has to be our will for each other, for ourselves. Which, as a side note, brings me to another commandment that says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I mean, I'm not gonna go into it right now, but I would bet that most of you would benefit from committing to a Sabbath practice, just like me. Capitalism demands overwork. White supremacy produces violent urgency, but God asks us to rest and remember what is holy. God demands our resiliency. And that's all I'm gonna say about that for now. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus's love, in God's love, in the love for black communities, immigrant communities, Asian communities? We are told that we are meant to love one another as God has loved us, which I will say is way more helpful reference point for me than love your neighbor as yourself because most of us don't do a great job of loving ourselves, even liking ourselves. And unfortunately, that often gets mapped onto our neighbors. White supremacy has told many of us that we're failures because we have failed to live up to the lie of white supremacy and the promise of white power. When we internalize that feeling of failure, our sense of what we deserve becomes distorted. We shut down and close ourselves off from others. We isolate, believing if we keep grasping for control someday soon, we'll be lovable again. So I don't really want to love others as I love myself. I'm still working on that. I want to love myself and my neighbor as God loves us. Jesus tells us that he has made known to us everything that he has heard from God. God has told us how to love God through scripture and the Ten Commandments, just like our neighbors have told us how to love them through protest, policy, and personal stories, it is up to us to listen and abide in that love, to accept it and act in accordance with it. It is up to us to trust that abiding in love ultimately produces joy, not suffering. We did not choose God, but God chose us. We did not choose this moment, but this moment chose us. God's love has chosen us to bear fruit that will last, not a quick one-off, not one summer of action. We are asked to endure. We are asked to reject white supremacy so that we can love ourselves, so that we can love our neighbors, so that we can love God. Take time to imagine what God wants for you, for your neighborhood, for your country. Write it out or draw it. What comes to mind? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? What does it sound like? What is one step you can take to move closer to that reality that God wants for you? In this place of imagination, I encourage you to dig deeper into the call to defund the police. And remember that these questions are not meant to live only in our minds, where reason does battle for a right answer. These are questions for our heart, questions for our guts, questions that honor and respect the nuance of the lives we actually live. These questions are personal, They're meant to care for you. They're questions that bring us back to moments of pain and harm in our own life and ask, what support did you get? Was it enough? What would have actually worked? What would have kept you safe? What would have kept you housed? What would have kept your family together? What would have kept the person you love alive? Know that these questions aren't really questions at all. They're reminders, a whisper of worth, an assertion of dignity, a promise that we are not alone, we are connected and together we can build the world we deserve. As your final call to action for this week, I encourage you to buy Mariam Kaba's book, We Do This Till We Free Us. Read it, discuss it with others, and use it to spark your imagination. Thanks, as always, for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. And we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Just search the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast, including Spotify, which we're now on. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which includes references, resources, and action links. Finally, a huge thanks to our sound editor, Matt Reno. Let us close with a word of encouragement. May you move through this week knowing that you are deeply loved and known by a God that wishes abundance and justice for you and the world, a God that loves and trusts you so deeply that they ask you to join in the work with them. Amen.